I'm very pleased to be able to introduce our first speakers across EPIC seminars for Hillary, uh, Raylene Walsh from the University of New England, and he's going to read us a paper entitled Good Intentions and Political Life Against Virtue Parsimony. For those who haven't been here before, the format is somewhat flexible. We have uh, a talk, we have a discussion, and then, if time permits, we have a glass of high-quality St. Cross wine, and we do it all in 90 minutes. So, without further ado, take away, Adrian. Oh, thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me here. Part of the background of this was, I saw, there was a, like, it's a few years ago now, um, in the Companion to Political Philosophy, I think it's a Blackwell, there's an article by Jeffrey Brennan about the contribution of economics to uh, political philosophy. And there's a claim in it that one of the main contributions of political philosophy, of, sorry, of economics to political philosophy was this idea of virtue parsimony. And I'll explain it as we go through. Um, but in some ways, the idea can be caught up here in this quote of Hume's. In contriving any system of government and fixing the several checks of the Constitution, every man ought to be supposed to know to have no other end to all his actions than private interest. So generally, I think it's a commonplace... Uh, a political theory that the good life and the good society are intimately interconnected. In order to maximise our chances of living well, we require a well-ordered polity. And this is one of the fundamental challenges of politics. Typically, we regard a good society as, amongst other things, a society that has well-designed institutions. Now, one crucial aspect of this design challenge concerns itself, or concerns the relationship between individual virtue and uh, political institutions that are desired. Is it in general a good idea to prefer those institutions that demand from participating individuals a virtue-rich input, oh, input, or should we prefer those which are thrifty with respect to virtue inputs? So, I mean, that's the central uh, question that I'm uh, looking at. Um, whether or not we uh, want to economise on virtue... Um, or not. All right. So my aim is to argue that moral virtue still has a role to play in the project of fostering a good society. Okay. Um, I had a plan of what I was going to do with this. Okay. Um, all right. So I think it's a common feature of traditional political philosophy. Uh, well, one common feature is the assumption that in order to realise a good society, we require virtuous citizens. And by virtue, all, by virtue, all I really mean here is uh, being oriented towards the common good or being other regarding. So I, I don't have uh, a more substantive account of virtue in mind. All I mean is that what I, in the title of the paper, good intentions, right, something like good intentions. So uh, when I'm talking about being um, requiring virtuous citizens, what I'm talking about is that you have people who are oriented towards the common good or... Uh, or another way of putting it is that the other regarding in some significant sense. Now, I mean, I would take, you know, some, you know, in, in, and I don't, one thing I don't want to get into too much is, you know, the fine details of different historical figures, but I, I would take, you know, part of the idea of Plato's Republic to be something like this, that in order to um, generate a good society, what we need are good citizens. And, and the most, some of the more extreme versions of this you find in some of the utopian socialists. So, somebody like Charles Fourier, who thought that the solution, as I said there, to the horrors of commercial society is for all individuals to unite into communities governed by relations of fraternity. 
So his idea was that we need to... I mean, he wanted to get rid of the market. Um, he saw himself as an enemy of the market. And what he wanted was small communities in which people... Uh, in which their interactions were governed by some ideal of universal amity. So the sorts of relations you might have within a family, or idealised version of the relations that you might have in a family, he was hoping to universalise or at least make the governing principles of uh, the sort of... Well, basically, they're communes. Right. So, uh, so this is what I'm going to call a virtue-rich conception of uh, the good society. So a virtue-rich conception of the good society demands rich virtue input on the part of those who are members of such a society in order to function well. <coughs> A corollary is that if people are not so motivated and such virtual inputs are not forthcoming, then society won't flourish. Um, and indeed, many of the visions of a good society, like, like Fourier's, cannot work unless the citizenry are motivated by the, uh, you know, the common good. Okay, so I, I think this is quite a natural view. And you hear it uh, put forward by various um, you know, politicians at different points. Um, but if it's a natural view, there is at least since the 18th century an alternative according to which if we're faced between, with the choice between two social systems, then all other things being equal, we should prefer that alternative which requires the least virtue on the part of the citizenry. And I should call this the tradition of virtue parsimony. And I want to just briefly say that we find it in Mandeville. So, so I have tra you can trace its origins in early modern philosophy with Bernard Mandeville in, in something called the Fable of the Beast. And this is the quote, I mean, I, I don't know if anybody's read Mandeville. Um, it's long and difficult um, piece of poetry, if you might put it that way. But anyway, here's, here's the quote. Thus every part was full of vice, yet the whole mass of paradise. Such were the blessings of that state, their crimes conspired to make them great. The worst of all, the multitude did something for the common good. Right. And... Um, the idea is summed up in the slogan, which is the, the subtitle of Fable of Bees, Private Vice, Public Benefit. Um, Mandeville also writes that human frailties may be turned to the advantage of civil society and made to supply the place of moral virtue. Now, this has at first the air of paradox, but I think only if one holds a sort of compositional idea uh, or the compositional thought, then in order to have a good society, then you need to have um, good members. Right? So the idea would be something like... Uh, you know, like in, in informal logic, they talk about the fallacy of composition. So suppose the, the idea is roughly, uh, and, and somebody like Mandeville would say, there's no reason to think that the, in order to have a good whole, you need to have good parts. So, but it does have the air of paradox, and it's certainly, um, it's certainly counter to a great deal of political discourse, you know, historically, in political philosophy, and then even contemporary political society. You know, there's always... You know, it's not what you can do for society. It's not what society can do for you, it's what you can do for society. Right. Although we might concede Mandeville the logical possibility uh, of private advice giving rise to public benefits, there's little explanation to be found in Mandeville about how this might function, how private advice might give rise to public benefit. That, the accomplishment of that task fell to uh, Adam Smith and the Invisible Hand. Right. So whose idea the invisible hand furnished a mechanism or an explanatory mechanism for explaining how it could be that people, maybe not being vicious, but certainly being self-interested, could give rise to public benefits. So I've got the quote here that you've all, would have all come across. It's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard for their own self-interest. Okay. 
So the idea is that self-interest or self-love is causally efficacious in the production of certain material social benefits. Note here he's talking of self-interest, not vicious or malevolent behaviour. I mean, I think Mandeville is a much blacker figure, in a way, because he is actually talking about being vicious. I mean, the butcher or the baker here are not uh, acting viciously, they're just simply looking after their own interests. <coughs> now, I think in order to get uh, the argument going, partly where I want to go uh, with this, in terms of the principle of virtue parsimony, I think there's two assumptions or two implications for institutional design. One is the naive assumption. All right? Now, and this is probably more controversial. This is what I'm getting from Hume. But I'm not suggesting this is what Smith is uh, holding. But I think in order to get the principle of virtue parsimony, you need something like this going. Um, and, the, the, and you also need the idea of governing by self-interest. All right? The naive assumption is that those designing social institutions should assume that human beings are self-interested. As David Hume puts it, political writers have established it as a maxim that in contriving any system of government and fixing the several checks of the constitution, every man ought to be supposed to knave and to have no other end in all his actions than private interest. Okay. Um, and the second, all right, that should be fairly clear, we should govern by self-interest. All right, so the idea is, uh, the conclusion is that given this fact about human nature, we should attempt to govern by indulging that self-interest rather than setting our policies against it or assuming that it doesn't exist. And again, from him, uh, we find by this interest we must govern him and by means of it make him, notwithstanding his insatiable avarice and ambitious, cooperate to public good. We find a similar point in Bentham. All right, so it's, not, it's, a, it's a kind of line of thought that, that gets going here about institutional design. So make it each man's interest to observe that conduct which it is duty to observe. If we follow this line of reasoning, then choosing between different ways of organising society and social institutions we should clearly opt for that which relies less on virtue and which panders to human self-interest. Okay. Um, okay, so what I then come up with is what I call the principle of virtue parsimony. And it's roughly this that Brennan's talking about in... Jeffrey Brennan's talking about in the um, Companion to Political Philosophy when he's talking about the contribution of economics. And the idea is that if we're faced with a choice between two or more forms of institutional design, then all other things being equal we should prefer the one that requires less virtue input from its citizens to the one that requires more. Okay, okay so, good. so far so good. Um, now, I mean, I think one thing to note here is that... Okay, this is the quote from... or the reference to Brennan. The idea is that the central contribution of economics to political philosophy is that virtue is scarce. Now, I mean, clearly... It is something that uh, economists have um, discussed. And you find, I mean, here's James Buchanan, for instance, echoing Smith on butchers and bakers. He says, I do not know the fruit salesman personally, and I have no particular interest in his well-being. He reciprocates this attitude. I do not know and have no need to know whether he's in the direst poverty, extremely wealthy, or somewhere in between. Yet the two of us are able to transact exchanges. No, and I think part of it, uh, I mean, in contemporary economics, there's a tendency to try to give a, a, a scarcity definition of economics. So, since, say, Lionel Robbins, The Nature and Significance of Economic Science in 1946, there's been a tendency to see economics as the discipline which studies human behaviour as a relationship between ends and scarce means which have alternative uses. And obviously, one of the ideas here is that uh, virtue 
in that sense, is scarce. But I don't really want to say, I don't want to be simply saying this is only coming from economics. Um, I think we're misleading the extreme to maintain that the influence of this idea is too solid to the influence of economic theory. Because I think, in a way, the, the principle has an appeal, um, to, it has a certain explanatory appeal because of certain social changes in the West in particular. Um, one of these, one reason it has some appeal, is basically the success of market economies. <coughs> so it provides an explanation for the, that success. They succeed because they rely on self-interest. Markets are successful for the very reason that Adam Smith pointed to uh, when he pondered the food he found before him. So the benefits of the market are often said to derive from the dedicated selfishness of economic agents. And any virtue input, um, any, sorry, any virtue input being there, an invisible hand will fail to deliver its optimal outcomes. I think, so that's one aspect of it. There's another, I mean, probably less uh, important, but the failure of various utopian projects which relied heavily on what you might, uh, you know, virtue input, virtue-rich political projects, might also be seen as a reason for um, preferring or endorsing the principle of uh, virtue parsimony. I mean, there's a story, uh, I'm, I'm from Australia, there's a... Um, not obvious, but there's in the late 1890s there was a pro I mean, and there are many of these, but there was a, a group of uh, disenchanted socialists or unionists uh, who left the country after various strikes were broken and went and set up a uh, commune, a, you know, a new colony, New Australia in Paraguay. And the idea of it, this New Australia, was that it would be founded on you know socialist principles, where people who were the only there'd be no market, be no you know hierarchies, and it would be just governed purely by uh, you know, some sort of universal amity. And, and the failure of some of those uh, kinds of projects are often given as more grounds for, I mean, not for endorsing virtue parsing. All right. Now, of course, you know, I'm not the first person to talk about this. And one person who's had said a fair bit is uh, Albert Hirschman in an article called Against Parsimony. Um, and he argues that sponsoring virtue parsimonious institutions undermines the virtue we do possess. <coughs> He suggests that our promotion of institutions that idealise self-interest affects our other regarding sympathies. So that's one line of response to um, this ideal of virtue passing. Funnily enough, uh, he suggests, okay, suggests that our promotion of these institutions undermines our goodwill, if you want to put it that way. Interestingly, Brennan and Hamlin, in a later article, mockingly referred to this as the muscle wastage thesis. It, you know, it's the idea that if you don't... Um, expressive virtues or some kind of other regarding um, attitudes, then th th those capacities will waste away, just as if you don't exercise, then your muscles will waste. But they, I mean, they sort of refer to that in a mocking way. Now, there is, of course, a lot of uh, empirical literature that is, at least, you know, if it's not directly on this point, is relevant. And one is the so-called crowding out thesis. Uh, an economist, Bruno Frey, has done a lot of uh, work to show that money undermines certain intrinsic motivations. So markets might be said to create our, our virtue, and that would be a one way of responding to this idea of virtue parsimony. I should say it's not the, it's not the main line I'm going to run here. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with it, but um, that's not the argument I'm going to run. But equally, there are crowding in theses. So um, famously, Voltaire said, enter the exchange of London, that place more respectable uh, the, so I should say the many a court. You'll see their agents from all nations assemble for the utility of mankind. 
There the Jew, the Mohammedan, the Christian deal with one another as if uh, they were the same religion and give the name infidel only to those who go bankrupt. <laughs> right? Now, this again is... I mean, Hirschman, in another book, um, calls this the do-commerce thesis. And it's the idea that commerce, rather than making us uh, vicious or, or relying on vice, actually softens us. Um, and softens us and makes us... Uh, uh, morally improves our uh, moral standing, if you want to put it that way. I mean, Smith has a similar line at one point. He talks about how the Dutch, who are the most uh, merchant, the, you know, mercantile nation, are the most timely, you know, the most uh, punctual, and given that you take that to be a virtue, um, uh, he thinks, again, I mean, it's an example of the two commerce thesis. <coughs> okay, so, and that's one way, I mean, this debate about crowding in and crowding out is where a lot of the debate about, uh, you know, the relative effect of markets on our sort of... Uh, virtue has gone. I want to take a slightly different, um, oh sorry, in a stronger way would be that markets require virtue. Sorry, just, and that's again, some people say, you know, I mean take Kenneth Arrow here uh, in the absence of trust, opportunities for mutually beneficial cooperation would have to be foregone norms of social behaviour including ethical and moral codes may be reactions of society to compensate for market failures. Okay, that's an even stronger line that would say not just to sort of undermines that markets undermine virtue, but that, that you know they actually require virtue. Right? Now, what I want to do is just take a slightly different tack. I think there are virtue-accommodating accounts of how those material benefits of the market arise, uh, and, and also accounts of why virtue-rich social organisations fail, that we equally well explain that, that these phenomena. And given they are equally plausible, then there are further normative grounds for preferring the virtue-accommodating accounts over the parsimonious ones. So I'm, I'm not actually here, like, unlike Hirschman, I'm not um, saying that uh, the virtue parsimony is false. What I'm doing, trying to do is undermine some of the epistemic grounds for preferring the principle of virtue parsimony. <coughs> okay. All right. Um, now, it's often assumed, it's often assumed that if you're opposed to uh, the virtue rich, and if you think that there is some kind of problem with uh, projects that uh, institutional arrangements that rely on people being virtuous, that you must therefore endorse parsimony. Um, and, but here I, I sort of want to quote Alexander Hamilton, the Federalist, the assumption of universal venality in human nature is little less an error in political reasoning than the assumption of universal rectitude. Um, and the dichotomy, so what I'm trying to say is it's not as if we have to choose entirely between either virtue-rich or virtue-parsimonious accounts. Um, I want to suggest the dichotomy is false since it overlooks another position that I'll call political imperfectionism. You might think of it as a middle path. According to the imperfectionist, human beings are, one, this is an account of human nature, I suppose, self-interested but not devoid of other regarding concerns or concern for the common good, and two, subject to various kinds of temptation. So for the political imperfectionist, the aim of political institutions is not to minimise the requirements of virtue, Rather, it's that we should avoid presenting agents with institutional moral hazards which may tempt them into socially damaging behaviour. Right. Now, there's a further debate, and in a way, you might actually think this is what John Locke's on about. And as I said before, I'm, I mean, I'm not enough of a scholar, so if, it's lock, if this account is locking, then so be it, and, and, and that's good. There's a quote, but if it's not, then I'm not fast. What I want to do is just present what I take to be you know, a, part, a position in between. Um, parsimony and the virtue rich and 
if, if that's what Locke is defending, then fine. But anyway, here's a quote from Locke. I doubt not that it's unreasonable for men to be judges in their own cases, that self-love will make men partial to themselves and their friends. And on the other side, ill nature, passion and revenge will carry them too far in punishing others, and hence nothing but confusion and disorder will follow. God has certainly appointed government to restrain the partiality and violence of men. Now, what, what I'm saying is, I mean, Locke is saying here that we're partial, and as I say, I don't necessarily want to get into the whole debate about what but, and, and that's, I suppose, what I'm saying. We're imperfect, but at the same time, it's not as if we're, without, we're devoid of um, uh, any virtue whatsoever. Now, where do you want to say that? That's Locke's view is another question. But the point of what I'm saying here is that the repudiation of virtue-rich social formations need not commit one to the principle of virtue parsimony, because there's at least one other way of assuming the virtue-rich. So I'm, a, I'm suggesting that it is a good idea to... There are reasons for wanting to avoid virtue-rich forms of social arrangements or social institutions. But that doesn't necessarily commit you to uh, the principle of virtue parsimony. All right. Now, one, one of the grounds that leads people towards virtue parsimony is the successes of the profit motive uh, and, the, and the market. And people see that as evidence for the principle of virtue parsimony. I want to suggest that that remains an open question. Uh, arguments for the virtue of parsimony are clearly connected to a view about the benefits of market-based society, about how they're realised. Markets are said to work because they harness self-interest through the incentives of the pursuit of profit it provides. Now, this is just assume, I mean, you know, it's, again, you might want to disagree with it, but that the invisible hand mechanism works. Let's just say that the invisible hand does work. That is, pursuit of profit generates social benefits that are not necessarily intended by any of the agents who bring them about. I mean, that's the sort of paradox of the invisible hand, that uh, people pursuing certain kinds of goals have outcomes that they didn't intend. But one of the questions is whether the profit motive excludes moral... I have a question mark there, excludes moral content. And for me, I think part of the problem here is the conflation of self-interest and selfishness. The mere fact that I pursue my own interests does not make me selfish, nor does it mean that I cannot respect the interests of others in doing so. There is a tendency to want to say that the fact that you're pursuing some kind of self-interested project means that there's no moral content or no other regarding content whatsoever in your uh, deliberations or in your actions. So, in, in, in a way, what I'm doing is just reiterating Bishop Butler right, um, in the lectures of the sermons at Rolls Cathedral. A due concern about our own interests or happiness and a reasonable endeavour to secure and promote it is a virtue, and the contrary behaviour faulty and blamable, since in the calmest way of reflection we approve of the first and condemn the other conduct, both in ourselves and others. Now, so I mean, one of the things that Butler was on about was not conflating or not confusing uh, self-interest and selfishness. And I think if we take those lessons into our understanding of the profit motive, um, I think we tend to talk about the profit motive, but I think it's better to talk about profit motives, right, in the plural. Because there are different ways that we might pursue profit. Some of them which, you know, uh, if we, if we look at the motivational structure, some of them will include um, other regarding content and some of them don't. So you can imagine somebody who... Actually, I'll talk about that in a minute. Pursuing profit by itself does not make one selfish in the rule out other regarding motives. I think that would be to endorse an avarice-only conception of the profit motive. So the profit motive is a singular uh, motive, and you can't distinguish between different ways in which one might pursue profit. All right. 
So, what I'm going to suggest here, and this is a long way around, to, uh, but I'm going to distinguish between different forms of the profit motive. So you might pursue profit for its own sake without any moral side constraints. So we use the notion of goals and side constraints that comes from a philosophy of action. We can actually draw distinctions between kinds of profit motives. This term, leucopath, I came up with a, uh, myself and Tony Lynch came up with this idea, and our aim at the time was to try to get it into um, the OED. We failed, but I've noticed it's in a word a day, <laughs> so we've got that far. Um, all right. One might pursue, otherwise one might pursue it as a primary goal with certain moral side constraints on one's actions, and that's a loop of five. Right, so what's the point of this? I'm, I'm saying there's different kinds of profit motives. Um, I want to suggest it's an open empirical question as to whether the benefits of Smith's invisible hand can be sheeted home to pure self-interest or to, to a morally constrained relative of that. Um, right. So... Is it the case that the benefits of the invisible hand, and this is the main reason people are, um, are driven towards the principle of virtue parsimony, is it the case that the invisible hand works on profit motives that have no moral side constraints, or is it one that operates on um, uh, profit motives that do have moral side constraints? Okay. Um, and if it's the latter, then the principle of virtue parsimony is false, for in such circumstances choosing the system which requires less virtue would lead us towards less material benefits. As I say, I, mean, I think that remains an open question. Right. So that, that's the first thing against... I mean, as I say, I'm trying to undermine the epistemic grounds of that. That's an argument against virtue parsimony. It's just saying, well, it remains an open question whether or not the invisible hand comes from uh, a, a relatively virtue-free um, pursuit of profit or whether it comes from a... Uh, uh, profit motives that are constrained by certain sorts of moral considerations. Okay, there's another argument that people often give, and this is about the formation of virtuous citizens. Um, and I've got a quote there from Aristotle. Now, this is sort of heading back to the virtue rich, but there's a long tradition in political philosophy of defending the idea that virtue should be encouraged or fostered. So if you think about Aristotle, he had this... Uh, our idea about the purpose of laws, and presumably you could include this in the purpose of institu you know, institutional arrangements <coughs> more generally. So, lawgivers make the citizens good by inculcating habits in them, and this is the aim of every lawgiver. If he does not succeed in doing that, his legislation is a failure. It is in this that a good constitution differs from a bad one. All right, now, a common argument in favour of virtue-fostering action is that there are significant benefits to be obtained for the citizens themselves through the involvements in institutions that require virtuous behaviour. Right, so, um, one is that maybe the society is better. Two, that the, the, the citizens themselves benefit from being involved in such activity. Through participation in such institutions, they are provided with opportunities for the exercise of virtue, and this is desirable in itself, since it aids in the formation of virtuous citizens. And the argument's analogous to a claims by, I mean, I suppose long-dead writers like Ernest Barker and principles of social and political theory, that democracy is valuable in itself the opportunities it provides for individual development. Right? So it's that kind of argument, that it's not just the outcome that matters, but it's the opportunities it provides for people to be involved in democracy or in, uh, in some kind of virtuous institution uh, and the effects it has upon uh, the way that they are. Okay. Right. Now, but hang on, so if we stop here, we think, hang on, there's difficulties with this. 
As we already noted, there are strong grounds for questioning the viability of virtue-rich political institutions. And political history would seem to indicate that when such institutions require, require us to be saints, disaster often follows shortly thereafter. So you might think, well, this is just heading back to where we were before with the virtue-rich. However, acknowledgement of such problems is not to endorse the ideal of virtue parsoning. But there is at least one other relevant approach, as I said before, clinical imperfectionism. According to the imperfectionist model, the danger of uh, forms of political life that require operation by saints can be understood in terms of our proclivity for partiality in making and applying our moral judgments, rather than our complete lack of any moral sense. The lessons of political history of virtue-rich institutions can be accommodated within a model that does not treat morality as barely existent. Alright, so, okay, at this point. Um, I mean, obviously, we have no a priori reason to prefer an imperfectionist model to the model of virtue passing. So, you've got two. Is that deliberate? That's good, because I was, you know. Right, so, um, what I was going to put forward was a construct, and I'm heading towards the end here, so that's good. Um, a constrained principle of fostering virtue. I mean, I actually think there's something to this, but I wanted to give a, a more moderate version of it. So, as I say, there's two arguments I'm running against uh, against virtue parsimony. The first one is just simply, look, it's not clear that you need to uh, get rid of virtuous or um, virtuous content in order to get the benefits of the invisible hand. And the second one is that uh, there may well be some virtue or some benefit to be, or you know, something laudable, something desirable about having institutions which foster virtue. So the way I phrase this is if we have to choose between two forms of organisation that we have good reason to believe are equally efficacious, then we should choose the one which is more likely to foster virtue. All right? So it's, it's a rather, maybe it's a weaker principle, but if you have two different uh, forms of social institution and they're equally likely to produce the, you know, the benefits that you like, no, given you can, uh, that you want, given that you can know that, um, they're equally causally efficacious, then the, the, the institution to just choose is the one which is more likely to foster virtue. And the idea there is that all other things being equal, it's a good thing to have um, institutions that foster our other regarding capacities. Right? So in a way that's heading back to what Hirschman was worried about. Alright, so just... Uh, by way of finishing up, I've got a little um, parable. <laughs> um, a relative of mine with, it must be said, a particularly dim view of human nature, recently expressed a dismay at a report that suggested that more people are killed in the passenger seat than the driver's seat. Right. Now, I'm just assuming that's true. Yeah. Um, his suggested explanation was that drivers typically act to protect themselves before the passengers and swerve away from any looming danger thus exposing the passenger side of the car. Now, maybe that's not the explanation. All right, I'm open to that as well. All right. um, but my relative interpreted this as a sign of the essential wickedness of humans. Instead of sacrificing ourselves and acting as a saint would, we willfully save ourselves at the expense of others. Are we saints or are we knaves? Um, my relative concluded that the statistics reveal us to be knaves. But I think there's another interpretation that regards this as a sign of our partiality rather than our wickedness. We naturally react to save ourselves, but this does not reveal malicious intent towards our fellow human beings. Our instinct is to self-preservation, not harm to others. 
the harm to passengers is unintentional on this account. In the same way, mutatis mutandis, we should not view the dangers and failures of virtue-rich institutions as grounds for endorsing the principle of virtue parsimony. When institutions fail, it may occasionally be that this is because the moral bar has been set too high for ordinary human beings, but more likely it will be that the institution has allowed the distortions of partiality to dominate. Such partiality is not, as the Carr case shows, a manifestation of vice. It is simply, understandably, a fact about how human beings work. And it is because they tend to work that way that we need political institutions, and ones that are so arranged as to minimise the effects of such partiality. When one turns to the second common justification of virtue parsimony, the appeal to the benefits that the market provides, we find that it's indeterminate whether those benefits are a result of selfish bastardry or of that ordinary human partiality that sees us favour ourselves and our interests but does not rule out other regarding concerns. Those who, like my cynical relative, take the fact that we're not always good, and certainly hardly ever as good as we could be if we were touched by saintliness, to mean that we should proceed on the assumption that we are simply knaves, and so onto the conclusion that the institutions of a good society attain perfection when they eliminate any need for the inputs of the individual virtue, would seem to be T.S. Eliot's target in the poem called The Rock, which I was just going to end on. Uh, they constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. The truth is that the darkness within is not our irremediable evil, but our eminently human propensity to partiality. Dealing with this uh, does not require perfect institutions, but it does require intelligent ones. That intelligence will not deny our virtues or assert our beastliness. If we, it will take us as we are, and as Locke did, I mean, arguably in the second treatise, we'll seek to harness our intelligence and our virtues so we may have more justice in the world than would otherwise be the case. So that's it. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you very much, David. We are recording the questions. Um, <laughs> so if you get abuses, as, you know. Yeah. As well as the talk. So, um, and we will podcast them. If you don't want your question to be recorded, then um, well, either we think what you want to ask, or come see me afterwards and we will endeavour to uh, delete the question. So, questions, yes. Thanks very much. Um, having worked a bit in politics in Australia, trying to talk about virtue there. Uh, I must say the word input is gracious on me. Okay. What I'm but um, you don't what, what, just, yourself with the TSLH. Okay. <laughs> uh, I just, yeah, adopting the language. Oh, no, okay, no, yeah, no, I'm yeah. actually very interested in um, why you think it's difficult to talk about specific virtues like um, uh, self control or empathy or courage, generosity, um, or patience in, in this context. Why do I think it's difficult? Yeah, why why don't people You seem to, to not actually talk about actual virtues. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, look, I don't have a, I, I don't think it's a problem in mean, myself. I don't think it's a big problem with talking about those. I was more just, you know, the abstract level. I mean, I'm happy to talk about more particular, thicker, you know, particular specific um, virtues if you wanted to. I was, I was just more just picking up on this. You know, debate, and that's the way they talk about it. And that's what Brennan calls, you know, virtue parsimony. And the idea is that there aren't any, regardless of whether it's you know self-control, temperance, um, you know, generosity, or whatever. That, that 
all of those are missing. So, okay. but, but when, when, when it strikes me, you have very different institutions depending on which which you wanted. Yeah, okay, and, good. Um, which you needed yeah. different, very specific local contexts. Yeah. No, look, I think that's right. But I mean, I, I mean, um, this is at a level of abstraction. I mean, presumably there's going to be a wide variety of different kinds of institutions if you were fostering these virtues as opposed to those. Is that roughly what yeah. you're Yeah. Look, I, that's not a problem for me. I was just more generally trying to make space for the idea of um, virtues then, you know, but that is going to end up having very different kinds of um, ways of, I mean, as you say, the institutions that form will be very different. I'm not saying anything other than you're saying. You're already saying that. But look, to be honest with you, I'm not opposed to doing that, but it would be much more fine-grained analysis you're talking about. And as I say, I was just trying to make a general case for um, defending some kinds of other regarding or, you know, um, concern with the common good. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, when I reflect upon your large question that yep. you were addressing, what came to mind was there might be a non-ethical input that uh, would be worth considering. Yep. Uh, in, in other words, the answer to your question may not be answered by a moral assumption at all. It may be answered by individuals or groups aversion to risk mm. because the uh, risk-averse person may well want a want virtue parsimony because that's going to be a less risky option mm. than uh, uh, requiring everyone always to be good. It, uh, so the, the less risk-averse you are, the more comfortable you are with actually packing a lot of expectations into one's morality. So I, it's really just a comment to suggest that there may be non-moral inputs that are worth considering when you... Look, I mean, look, one of the things about it, it's not clear whether Hume is saying, you know, when Hume, and look, I have to go and read Hume more closely, but there's two interpretations of what Hume is saying. One is that uh, there's no, you know, very little virtue. Another is just, as a general policy, um, and be your risk aversion interpretation, as a general policy, we're probably better off in any situation assuming less virtue than more. Right. Now, but that's, that's not exactly getting what you're well, saying. Well, uh, it's very close. It's just that you're saying we're better off, but that's actually not quite right. You're only better off if, depending on where you are in the risk-averse spectrum, mm. if you're actually very risk-averse, then you're, then you're going to... It's going to appear to you as if it's some sort of moral uh, judgment that, oh, yes, it's better for us, or normative judgment, mm. for us to be better, at, uh, that we'd be better off at that spectrum. You might interpret that retrospectively as a moral judgment or a normative judgment. Mm. It's not a moral or normative judgment at all. It's actually just uh, coming straight out of your preferences because you're risk-averse. Yeah, okay, but just take the, you know, the, if we go back to this little... Um, oh, no, I, I can I said the same. But this, this, I mean, I've sort of built into it the equal application, presumably, therefore, I mean, let's, let's take it that way, and it would be equal, equally... The risk is not going to be different. So there's no reason, if you're risk-averse, to choose one over the other. In that case, it'd be better to... I mean, if I can build that into it. Um, I mean, presumably, if they're equally causally efficacious, you also know there's no greater risk with either these two possible institutional sets. Um, oh, but surely, it, it, surely there is a difference in risk, and that is the ones that require more virtues are riskier than the ones that re require yeah, less yeah, virtues. Yeah, but let's just, okay, let's just assume that away. Right. Um, in that case, let me, let me do that. Um, uh, maybe I'll have to build that in as well. But 
Um, in those sorts of cases, then, is there any reason not to uh, choose the one that requires more virtue? If you're not risk-averse... Well, no, let's just say that, well... There's, um, no, there's no impediment to you yeah. going with your line. But what I'm saying is there's a confound that yeah, yeah, may yeah. be worth considering in that if you're risk-averse, yep. then you're, there's something else getting in the way of you choosing... Okay, but let's just tease this out a little bit because, I mean, it's interesting, I think, and it's important. Um, what, what's the, what, what are you risk-averse about the idea that people will be less virtuous than your system requires That's right. and therefore the system will... Fall over more yeah, than you. Yeah. The, the risk of the system falling yeah. over is a higher risk than you're willing to entertain. Yeah. So okay. you actually move your expectations. Yeah. I think it's complications. I mean, one of the things here is the extent to which you build into your system. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, a couple of things. Here, but one of the extent to which you build into your system um, methods for preventing. You know, um, you know, I mean, part of the system, the idea I'm pushing here is that, you know, that we are partial. That we are capable of better than uh, yep. we often exhibit. So, um, whether or not that places us in greater risk by relying on virtue, I suppose, and that's what you are I think it is. Yeah, yeah okay. Well, that, I mean, that might be something I need to build into it in a way. But, um, not if you, if, if you want to keep the account purely normative, yeah, yeah, then yeah. I, I've simply reflected, when I reflected on it, I thought, oh, maybe there's something that's just completely non-normative yeah. that would need to be taken into account. I think one of the things is whether or not it's a requiring virtue and fostering virtue, and there might be just differences to be had there. And in a way, you know, it's, it's, it's the story you're saying that um, it's risky because this one requires this much virtue and this one requires that much. That's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, it depends, um, depends what, how much you could also talk about. I mean, this, I've shifted the story slightly to virtue fostering, so... Yeah, it's whether that's, you know whether or not whether um, the virtue fostering needs to also have different levels of virtue requiring. If that makes sense. Yeah, you could have a system in which um, it might foster virtue, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's any less. I mean, I'm just thinking it's through. Yeah, that's yeah. question. Right. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's any less in terms of more in terms of what's required from citizens. You know, in the sense that if it does, if you don't get that virtue input, you pull over. I mean, if you think of something, I mean, it's a lot of those token projects, the extreme version of this. I mean, if everybody doesn't act towards the common good, then you know, and then they're hopeless you know, a lot of times, you know, because there's no institutional mechanisms for um, responding yeah. to that. Or if you, you know, if you leave, if you leave. Uh, I mean, another, you know, I mean, this is rather crude. It's not particularly five grand. But if you think about leaders and and um, general citizens and so on. If you don't have, me I mean, if you have systems that assume that the leaders themselves are good, then you've got problems as well. If you don't have institutional mechanisms for uh, constraining behaviour of those in charge, I mean, that's presumably part of the point of lock as well. I mean, yeah. I, like your, I like your distinction between fostering and uh, requiring, yeah. but another phrase that comes to mind is simply uh, hope for the best, plan for the worst. Seems to capture that yeah, yeah, yeah. distinction that you're trying to get to. Yeah. I mean, the second bit is that, I mean, this this is a sort of add on the end. The thing I wanted to do was just, I mean, this is sort of a bit of a hopefulness at the end. The, uh, the initial point I wanted to do is just saying that it's an open question whether or not the benefits we get. Um, but, I mean, so there's two lines of argument I had. One was that whether or not the benefits we get come from, you know, <laughs> people being vicious or whether there's some role for virtue. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's also, there's also debates now about. Maybe it's risky having societies that people don't that don't foster virtue. I mean, you know, the stuff about Arrow. Yeah. When Ken Barron's talking about that requirement of trust, we have societies that allow and, and try to set themselves up on the assumption that you know, uh, and seem to undermine trust, and there might well be um, you know negative consequences. Sure. Thank you. Okay, it's over here.
So it seems that whether you're a maid or someone who's regarding their own self-interest but is you know, also morally good, um, you come to the same conclusion that you should have systems that foster virtue. That I do. Based on, based on this, it seems that you come to the same conclusion whether you think people are intrinsically evil okay, or vicious yeah, yeah, yeah. or not. Yeah. And I wonder if, if, if my interpretation of that is correct or whether you think that if people are knaves then that system has to somehow be more stringent and you have to have a lot more safeguards and a lot more requirements. I mean, where are you coming from? Okay, good. All right. What you're picking on there is this, this, this principle here, isn't it? Okay. And I, I, let's just assume uh, we're people knaves. We've got two systems and, and each uh, just is causally efficacious so in terms of production of benefits. Um, then, yeah, I'm not actually saying whether or not people are nazis or... Uh, and in that case, um, you want to pick the one that um, fosters virtue. Fostering virtue doesn't necessarily mean we don't have, um, you know, regulations for prevention of bias. I mean, part of this is, you know, like, I mean, this thing about partiality is an acknowledgement, it's meant to be locking in that sense, that is an acknowledgement of people's propensity to look after themselves, and we do need to have uh, regulations in place. That was just more a kind of, you know, principle of reasoning, but if, let's not make any claims about what human nature's like, but if we've got two sorts of institutions, institutional possibilities, and we don't know whether, you know, regardless of whether people are knaves or whether, I mean, it's a good question you're asking, whether people are knaves or whether they're saints, if either, you know, both equally cause efficacious, then let's choose someone who encourages people to be more virtuous. I mean, it's, an, it's sort of similar to my bargain, people might give democracy. But I mean, that's a good question. Questions back there. Yeah, um, I was curious about uh, whether virtue parsimony, I guess you gave an, an, an indications route that kind of virtue parsimony would end up inevitably kind of getting rid of, you know, virtue requirements. But of course, which at the end, it doesn't necessarily falsify uh, virtue parsimony. Right? So we can just say there are certain virtues that are, you know, they end up being really great for societal benefits. So there's a few, so maybe honesty will be there, maybe, you know, some sort of basic societal cooperation will be there, and yeah. That is going to be a good reason you need these things to get a uh, prosperous society, right? And those are virtuous and yeah, also. Yeah. Uh, and so, so for, with virtue privacy, you can say, well, we'll build those into you. So, yeah, yeah. you want to require on it. And that, that's going to be good for society, also, it's good for virtue, that's great. And then you can, so you can build in whatever virtues there are that kind of are profit making, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then exclude the others. Maybe you exclude beneficence, exclude you know, certain, uh, certain forms of, uh, of, of justice. And yeah. then you can build in your objections and still retain. It's your idea something like there's a virtue minimum, so rather than being virtue parsimonious, because presumably, like it's just like you've got a society and you say these virtues here are required, whether they're trust and something else. Right. And I and I say to you, here's another society without those there. So presume you know it operates without those there. Now you're going to say to me, choose. Uh, you're going to presume the one that still has some virtues in it. So you're you're talking about a virtue minimum rather than. I guess virtue minimalism. Maybe. Yeah. yeah okay. I, I, that's why I kind of took the. the Basic thrust of, of yeah. parsimony would be is that yeah. you really want as few virtues as as you need, yeah, yeah. and you might only need a few, you might just only need your virtues. Yeah, that's but, right. I mean, maybe this is a possible form of parsimony. I think one thing again. I mean, it's a lot more of what I said. But I mean, the difference between saying that virtues just assume they're entirely absent and being virtue parsimonious, which is just you know it's relative between two. You might have two societies. You might, you might have two systems, and they actually both require a fair bit, an enormous amount of virtue. But virtue parsimony just says choose. You know, the one that requires less virtue. I, 
and I can see all this sort of conceptual geography you can do here in, in thinking about different ways of cutting that up. You know, I think you're a virtual minimalist by the sound of it. Like, or, you know, you've got some threshold or basic, yeah. you know, basic um, floor of virtues, but beyond that, you know, yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah. Okay. So I think there's a lot more different ways you can cut up positions here, probably, mm -hmm. if, that, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's answering your question, but, uh, you know, I don't think it's interesting. Okay, question over here. Following the comment about Mr. Bergen, I'd like to offer this conflict reminding of the conflict between, let's say, liberalism and communitarianism. And okay, not yeah. by chance, I think, when McIntyre called his book After Virtue, this, uh, this notion of, of, of a small community, and he talked about this, he was struggling to the union that went to Paraguay. I think it's only, uh, it, it, it's, let's say, um, it can happen only in small communities, and therefore, with better information of one another, it's uh, it's more possible that uh, this kind of, uh, of uh, information between other uh, the, the persons will, will could actually make this society a more virtuous uh, because everybody knows that the other people are virtuous, and therefore that uh, they will um, they will need. More, because of this, they, they can be less, uh, less, uh, mm. I mean, you make an historical claim that it's always gotten bigger, that, I mean, this is the part of the, I mean, sorry, I'm not going to here, but are you making an historical claim that the societies have gotten bigger, you know, larger, that they, that, they, that they can't rely on virtue in the way that they might have in a smaller community? Is that the suggestion? Because yeah, you, you might actually see some of these people like, you know, Smith and and humans are always responding to societies, you know, as they get larger, and I suppose the role of the market is a coordinating mechanism. Um, but that's not, was, there, was there something you wanted to... No, okay, thank you. So it seems like the majority of arguments for virtual proximity are that they tend to be more effective. Yep. Um, so can you talk about some examples where you might see two forms of organization that would be equally effective but require different levels of virtue or foster different levels of virtue and whether those types of situations are, are very frequent. Yeah, okay. I mean, look at, I mean, one, I mean, you know, um, I mean, okay, it's not a whole society, but think about Richard Titmuss's book, Forgive Relationship, which talks about blood donation. And so, obviously it's not making, I mean, but his claim is, I mean, obviously, that, um, do you know the book? It's a, it's a book of some, like, no, it came out in 1971, and it was about um, blood sales in the US and in Britain. And, I mean, there's a lot of arguments in there. People talk about commodification and marketization discuss a lot. Because one of the things he says is that blood don why you should maintain blood donation is because it's one of the few opportunities you have in large-scale societies like ours for anonymous altruism. Yeah. Okay. But that's not answering your question. There's another part of the book which is he gives an economic analysis and tries to show that um, you know, I'm not an economist, so I don't know, but he claims that the actual British system of having donation as opposed to paid 
is is more efficient. Uh, okay, now and then he gets the added, I mean, I wasn't I, when I was thinking. I mean, this only occurred to me now, but here then you get the added bonus of the fact that I say this is more you know this is more efficacious, it's more efficient um, economically, and then you get the added bonus of people have an opportunity to do something they don't do, which is it's meant to be virtue fostering, in in the sense that it um, is an opportunity people have to you know do something good for other people. And, I, don't know. I guess you have some arguments in markets and. Yeah, I mean, okay, I mean, and there again, I mean, we're not talking about whole societies, but maybe just institutional frameworks. We're talking about, blood, you know, blood as an example. So, I mean, I mean, because this is, I agree with this, it's all very abstract. Um, but it, these debates really, I mean, the virtue passing debates really are about markets as opposed to other forms of arrangement. You know, I mean, that's that's what's motivating a lot of it. Yeah. I have a question about the term virtue. Like, so of course, like you're, you're free to, to define it any way you want. Yeah, okay, yeah. And you do so in the beginning, but still, I, I get the impression from the discussion also that we are actually always sidetracked by, yeah. by the term. Like you're speaking of different virtues and uh, different, you know, you're speaking of beneficence and honesty and stuff suddenly. But actually, all you mean is like how much weight do you give to your own interests as opposed to the interests of others? Mm. Kind of Look, I mean, I, I think yeah, more could be said there. And I, I was thinking about this before. I mean, all I really mean is, do you put? I mean, the, the phrase and the title, "Good Intentions," to what extent are you motivated by? Um, and, that, and that's not particularly. How much are you motivated by the common good? How much are you motivated by the desire to help others? And that's. I mean, in, a, in the written version of this, I've tried to, you know, you know, specify a little bit more. But it does connect up with those other. I mean, there are. And I, I, well, your question is if there's a there's a danger of equivocation yeah. across a variety of different because what, what happens in the end, you basically say, well, look, look, human beings they are not really totally vicious. The only thing that is really relevant is that they happen to be partial. Yeah. But given your definition of virtue in the beginning, well, that's all it is to be vicious, right? because virtue is just to be other regarding, and so the more you move away from it, actually you're moving towards vice. So yeah, okay, but we're totally self-rewarding. But we can, okay, but we can. I mean, okay. To what extent are we motivated? I mean, I suppose you can talk about the degrees of the extent to which we're motivated by other regarding concerns, or by the, and it doesn't. I mean, and you can still that can fit with a partialist account. Right? Doesn't mean. I mean, you might be saying you're moving towards vice, but that doesn't mean you're vicious. I mean, I'm a spectrum. But, um, right, and I'm trying to avoid this sort of dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. Can I uh, say something on this? Um, I mean, I I thought you meant something much stronger about virtue. Uh, you meant actual sort of character traits. And no, that's I thought, what. Well, yeah, okay, if you didn't, I think I think you should because you could imagine that. Um, I mean, some uh, uh, parsimonious view of what's needed for a well and good society might might exactly involve certain character traits. You, know, mm. you might think that look, um, even if people are other regarding and so forth, it's no good if they're not honest, and they've got to have a sort of uh, yeah, okay. a enduring disposition to be honest or something like that. So at least some versions of virtue parsimony are going to require uh, full-blown character traits, not just uh, pro-attitudes to people. Or to the society as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to make it minimal, so it was just about pro-attitudes towards... Um, and, but interestingly, the point you pick up there, I mean, like Arrow, when he's talking about that, is talking about mm. trust, which is obviously a much thicker um, conception of virtue. Yeah, I mean, I, but I'm, maybe I just need to... Whether I need another term, but that's certainly where the term started. I mean, that, and that's what they mean in virtue passing. Mm. Is about the extent to which we're motivated by. I mean, he's not talking about like um, Rosalind Hurst's house virtue in that sense, or right. you okay. know, uh, Philip Foot or something when they talk about virtue, meaning you know specific or much thicker character traits. Um, what, what he 
what they're talking about is the extent to which we're motivated by... I mean, it's about our motivations rather than um, our habits of action. Sure. Uh, I mean, my yeah. only point is under some versions of this, it will be about trades. Yeah, OK, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. OK, yeah. that's in the front. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I preach Christianity, and so I was talking to him about... Jesus said to his uh, laborers that you are the salt of the earth. Salt of the earth means you have conscience, you know. And those people who have conscience, you know, they, have, they foster virtues. And those who have saltless people, no conscience, they cheat and fleece people. So in Jerusalem, most of the people, although they were prosperous, you know, but they were shameless, saltless. They would cheat people and had no virtues. Whereas the villages and other people had virtue and society was more joined together, foster uh, unity. And uh, virtues can be also measured in contentment. Mm. If people are contented, you have found them virtuous. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> that's okay. I mean, and why that connects up with what I was calling the traditional conception, or the tra traditional conception of political life is, how do we get a good society? We have good people. And that's what's interesting about Mandeville, because I think it's counterintuitive yeah. given that background, not just in a Christian tradition, but I think most of the religious traditions would say that in order to you know, have a good society, we want to have good people. And part of the point of, kind of trying to make yourself a better person is that you live in a better society. So, um, yeah, all right. And I think what, what you're saying there is the traditional Christian view fits with what I'm seeing yeah. as the. Yeah. The Thomas went to South India, and over there people have good virtues, you know. They fostered good, and they were had quite a good respect. But I mean, I suppose the question Mandel would say is, do they make a lot of money? Any further questions? Um, I suggested an non-normative. <laughs> Uh, other input yep. in the last point, but, uh, but I'm also um, reminded of the distinction between negative freedom and positive freedom, mm. and I wondered if that might be another interesting angle for inputs, this obviously being a normative input, yeah, yeah. but if you have a preference or if you think foundationally that somehow positive freedom is required in a way, uh, then I wonder if that might <coughs> tilt the balance in your argument. Also, I think that's right. You think you're like, I was over the line, you've got in mind. Oh, no, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's what I'm trying to think. So, I mean, this is my slow. So, so uh, if, you're a, if you're a fan of negative freedom or if you like a sort of million yeah. when it comes to all that I have to do is stay out of your way, yep. then that's a sort of a thin, a parsimonious sort of virtue. I mean, as long as I don't okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, if you think yeah. you're if you're a positive freedom type, you think you don't actually have freedom mm. until you have a whole heap of uh, social competence. And in fact, we we aren't free until we've got all those. Yeah. And okay. I wonder okay. If that yeah, right, yeah. I mean, the, the, the probably more affects the second claim that I've got here, which is in a way, it's much more a positive freedom notion. It's, yeah. But, well, at least society has some obligation to try to foster. That's right. Uh, yeah. Sort of I'm not sure, you know, how that, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, I'd, have to, I'd have to think about that. Sure. Okay. And to follow up to what was point was, previous point, but just what is on there, and whether there are actually forms of organizations that are equally efficacious in promoting or being a, bringing about a good society. Yeah. 
or um, good results in, yeah, in whatever good results in, in whatever way. Because the, maybe I didn't get the dialectic of the talk really right yet. Um, one of the reasons for virtual parsimony is kind of the idea that um, they are more efficacious if you have, if they are more parsimonious in employing virtual because that's often you won't get all the inputs you need for them to yeah. produce the result that in ideal places they will provide. And if that is true, then actually this condition never kicks in, right? Like the antecedent of the condition is there. Yeah, yeah. And if there are never two settings which are really different in kind of virtual requirement, mm. um, but have the same, uh, equally efficacious, then it's never relevant that... Uh, it depends uh, 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 how much... I mean, virtual parsimony just as I was taking it. I'm, I'm separating it out from the things that might motivate people towards that principle, which is... Mm -hmm. You know, it's empirical claim that um, virtue always, sorry, lack, you know, vice gives rise, people pursuing their own self-interest gives rise to more benefits. I mean, and you're right, that's an empirical claim, and that would not be possible there. But I mean, part of what I was trying to do in the first section of it was to undermine the idea, um, you know, and, and given you accept that undermining, you know, then maybe this uh, would follow. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, Adrian. Um,